this is, uh, you know, that negative thought you've been having, and uh, I just, uh, I just can't let you try and change yourself without a fight, so, uh, go ahead and just turn this show off, okay, and, um, uh, yeah, everything's still fine. This is Blindsight with your host, Bill Lundgren. We aren't holding back truth. We're here to help you heal and become the best you possible. Here's the chair. Here's the pillow. Here's Bill. Hello and welcome to Blindsight, produced by the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This is Bill Lundgren, your host for this podcast, and I'm delighted to be able to introduce to you Joy Coe, who's going to be today's guest. We're going to be talking about an important subject of uh, special education and helping particularly blind people and people with dyslexia. Joy, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Joy is the the principal of, uh, now I'm trying to remember, I'm sorry, it's the name of your company. Touching Success. It's Touching (laughs) Success, yeah. That's it, okay. So tell me a little bit about how you got into special education. Well, it started in tiny steps, but the biggest moment I can remember was my brother was trying to learn how to do algebra, and he had not only dyslexia, but he also had dyscalculia, which is a problem with numbers that the people struggle with. No and kidding. I sat down with him. Yeah, dyscalculia is, is a real thing. Um, and I sat down with him, and we went over his – he got into algebra 1, and so we were going over and over and over and over it, which was fine. I didn't mind. I had nothing to do. And then he got it. And he was so happy about finally understanding this concept that he just couldn't stop smiling. And for him, that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, so that kind of made me interested in what was this special ed thing out there in the world um, so that's how it got started. It was basically through my brother. Hmm. And you've been uh, in special education for 15 years, and you were a volunteer before then. Uh, and mm-hmm. you created this this company. Tell me a little bit about what brought you to the idea of having a, a separate company rather than just continuing as a special ed teacher. As you know, the school systems are difficult to work with, especially right now. There's so much going on. And I decided that I really didn't want to spend most of my time doing paperwork and trying to uh, dig the district out of holes that kept putting itself into. Um, And what I mean by that is that I had 25 students and six of those students was one hour a day. And it didn't seem to matter how much I pointed out we needed to hire one or two more teachers. They just said no money and figure it out. I decided I had enough. You know, I'd had enough trouble with that. Um, So then I was looking at dyslexia because that was something that I kept finding my students, even though they're blind, that they had it. And so Mm. I was sent on a training to learn how to do, to teach kids with sight, how to work with dyslexia. 
And then a group of us and I got together at this one school that I worked at, um, a school for the blind. And we put together kind of a mini program to experiment to see if we could get it to work for our kids. And it worked and it worked fantastically. And, uh, they started sending students to the three of us that couldn't learn to read because they'd tried everything. And we'd get the, the other couple teachers and I would get these students in front of us and we'd start using the program we adapted. And next thing you know, my students who people literally said, just give up on them. They're never going to learn. Just don't bother. They were reading by the end of the year at least all three of mine were that I had that had it. And um, it was just so thrilling. So then when I changed to district position and ran into one kid in particular, just she sticks out for me. And I was so frustrated because just for her dyslexia, I need to be able to commit two to three hours a week to her. But then there was mm-hmm. all the like, stuff that our students have to learn in addition to Braille. And I had no time for that and for the other. Um, And it made me sad that I couldn't do more. So then I arranged with the grandmother to have her go up to the school for the blind and everybody was happy with it. uh, So she could get more one-on-one time. And again, it was just like one more frustration. I I couldn't fill that child's needs. So what would happen if I had my own company that districts could um, work with to work with students like that and allow the vision teacher to focus on the, you know, what we call the expanded core curriculum, um, which are things like cane skills and uh, money skills, uh, things along those lines. I could focus on the dyslexia part with the kid, but then COVID hit (laughs) and everything kind of fell to pieces. So I couldn't really do a whole lot for a while. So I started working on getting my certificate through the national library for being a braille transcriber. And that's what I'm currently doing now is just kind of focusing on that. So you've really adapted and also problem solved in a way that, uh, Sometimes the school system just doesn't allow allow people to do. It's just, it's they don't have enough money to provide the support right. that our kids need. Right, right. So where does the funding come from? Uh, uh, from parents having, you know, in other words, somebody can contact you and say, I have a child who needs X, Y, Z, and then uh, it comes out of pocket, or is there... Uh, federal funds or any funds that can help support the kind of unique work that you provide? No, it's it's been more of a money of chasing down people who believe in what I want to do and then giving mm. me 100 here, 100 there, or sometimes a yeah. little more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mostly it's out of pocket. Okay, so, uh, but you fill the gap, and that's an important thing. Now, uh, how do people find you? Um, they can go to my website, which is touchingsuccess.education. And I have another one for specifically for the visually impaired, which is touching-success.com. Now, one of the things that occurred to, to me uh, before we went on the air, and I'm probably revealing my ignorance, but... Uh, what about those who's in, for whom English is 
a second language. You know, with American Sign Language, or, or I'm sorry, not American Sign Language, but Braille, adaptable to that, you know, that community and the kind of thing that you're uh, working with uh, to, to that population? That's a really good question. I am... Um... I'm trained to work with English language learners, or we call ELL kiddos, uh, sure. but I am not trained in working with them with the dyslexia. I am willing to give it a shot, but mm -hmm. um, we'd have to make sure it's actually dyslexia that's the issue and not just a language issue. Right. Yeah, that would be uh, trying to sort out the two, two of them because it would have an effect on their ability to... Uh, uh, to use Braille, would it not? To use Braille in and of itself, no, I don't think so. I think it might even help them improve their English skills. But to do the dyslexia um, plan, that would be affected. Yeah, but be, I, mm -hmm. I've taught kids who have English as a second language. I've taught them Braille. Mm. So, uh, what kind of thing do you experience in working with the parents of these? Now, you work primarily with children, correct? Correct. Now, but you also have to deal with the parents. And in some of the literature I saw, and you, you were talking about working with parents with paperwork and things like that. Is that what you also provide? Um, I'm not sure I quite understand your question. Well, uh, you have to deal with parents just to Correct. set up uh, a kind of, uh, you know, a relationship with them to help their child. So what's it like Correct. for you working with the parents? What kind of thing do you need parents to know? And what kind of work do parents have to do to help their children build on what you're doing? Okay. I like that question. Um, well, Usually when I'm working with kids that are struggling and as, as they kind of come around so they're not struggling quite as much and they're making improvements, their grades start improving, the, the parents are usually, usually really happy. They're just so thrilled to see the change in their child because people have given up on them. And maybe even the parent had because nobody else was supporting the kid. And... I like to try to get in there and say, no, no, this is fine. We can, we can work with this. And, um, you know, you always have like the one parent who thinks that you're charging too much for the kid's progress because kids progress at a different rate. And that's just part of right. teaching. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one aspect as far as how they can support and they can do this anyway i mean all the parents really should be playing rhyming games uh syllable counting games but like clap games you know it's like spaghetti and um things along those lines with the younger kids and if kids come into kindergarten able to do those skills usually they can go ahead and just keep going in the classroom and not really have too many problems with learning to read but some kids are just they just need that extra hand. And then you got to work with the parents and helping them know their kids are not failures. Their kids are not stupid. Their kids are just wonderful the way they are. So you really provide the uh, 
uh, positive support for the kids in all kinds of situations because, uh, some, as you say, a lot of people just give up and say, you know, that the kid isn't going to learn anything, and that's such a tragedy. It's it's one of the most upsetting thing. The first time I heard it, I, I didn't even know what to do. I mean, I just stood and mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I just stood and stared at her just with this. I must have just looked so aghast at what she said. It didn't even occur, it never occurred to me to even ever give up on that particular child too. Mm-hmm. And when I checked back in with her a few years later, she was reading at a first grade level, which for her. That was huge. So sometimes it can be a real challenge, but uh, operating on your own, you had the freedom to do that. Yeah, I hope to. I mean, like I said, the COVID came in and kind of tripped me up on most of my plans. I had it set out. I was starting to collect families, but uh, unfortunately, COVID, you know, people just didn't want to be around each other. And that's fine. I get it. Mm -hmm. I didn't either. So I'm trying to get my feet back under me and keep going. So, um, yeah, I think things will start to improve as people start trusting the environment better. Yeah, and getting getting their shots and, and uh, being comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. So you travel around the, uh, the, the state, the area? I Right now, I'll, I'll travel very local. I can't do a lot of long traveling because i'm out of the bay area and traffic is as bad as everyone thinks it is (laughs) yeah sure um but if they're willing if the parents are willing to bring their kid down somewhere then usually i can meet them there if if it's needed Uh, ideally i want to set up a place in my house that's quiet and uh, be able to work with parents and kids here Mm mm-hmm I wonder what we have to do to get the school system to start. I know everybody's short of money for everything, but this is so vital. You know, there's mm-hmm. uh, how do we get the school system to understand how important it is that they have enough special ed teachers and so forth. I don't want to get into a political political rant, but that is no, that no, is an I issue. understand. Yeah, so. In in terms of your work, what do you think is the biggest barrier? Is it the school system? Is it the parents? Is it the uh, not having enough tools? I know you you talked about working with uh, blocks for teaching Braille. I mean, what was that all mm-hmm. about? Using the blocks. Yeah. Um, the first level in, in the Barton system that I use uh, is just visually colored blocks i just adapt them you know stickers and textures and things like that and so then the kid i would give them two sounds like a and t and then they would say at at and then pull a block down for each sound so a would get one block and then go ah and t would get the next one which would be t and then pull it down and then they would touch each and say it all together. And that's why one of the reasons I called my company uh, Touching Success is because whether they have vision or not vision, they have to touch the blocks. And then with Braille, it's all touching. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, so touching brings success. So then the, the blocks are both for dyslexic kids as well as the, uh, uh, for the dyslexia as well as for the blindness, for... 
Yeah, it depends. Some kids, some kids, and I'm blind or deaf, or they learn to read so fast. It's just bam, they're they're out of kindergarten and they're flying up into second grade reading level. And then you have the kids that are behind, and are they behind because of a disability? And that's what we need to flesh out. Are those kids that are so far behind that you're looking at almost wanting to repeat grades, which we really don't want to do? You know, what is the difficulty there? And unfortunately, with a lot of our vision kids, Braille is difficult to learn. And sometimes they end up staying behind a year, first grade usually, uh, so we can get them caught up to where their peers are with Braille. Mm-hmm. And then they're in- integrated with the school system, but they have the skill of Braille. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you were uh, talking about in some of your literature about the expectations of parents wanting their kids to end society, to go into college, and you're saying, now wait a minute, uh, at least from what I'm, I was reading, uh, you have a different philosophy. Do you, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, it took me a while to develop it. I mean, for most of my early 20s, I was all about getting my students into college and university level and really try to succeed that way. And then as I got older, I started seeing that there are things like cooking schools and schools to learn technology that's specific for something like AWS for Amazon or programming for different things. And I realized that some of our students might be better off going that route and they can still make a lot of money. You know, programmers, once they get good at it, they do pretty, pretty well. And I just started thinking about that, just really, really thinking, like, do they need to go to university and spend thousands of dollars to do something they could go to a vocational school for? And they'll walk out with probably a couple thousand dollars in debt, but able to just jump right into the workforce and off they go. And then also the um, rehab uh, places for the visually impaired can help them get set up in different types of job situations as well. So I'm not saying that um, my students aren't capable of going to college and university. If they want to go that way, I'm 100% behind them, help them get set up with their uh, disability resource center, you know, get them set to go. But there's other options. So your your role is not just of the teacher per se, but you're the counselor as well in trying to help people make the kinds of decisions that work for them, for the student, and you know, help the parent help the student get make the decision that's gonna work best for them with the skills that they have. I think in every role I've done since becoming a special ed teacher that's almost always the case even when they're little teeny tiny tots you know the parents want to know about their future and you can't help but blame them you know especially if they've never interacted with kids that have a visual impairment or never even knew that such a thing as dyslexia existed you Mm -hmm. know these parents are scared and nervous and anxious about what's going to happen with their kids And if I and other teachers can guide them or reassure them, then everybody is better off. Mm -hmm. Now, we've been talking a lot about dyslexia, but uh, what would be a simple 
definition of dyslexia that would encompass the, the kinds of uh, students you're working with. Is there a simple definition that people who are listening can fully understand? So Lexia is language and this is, doesn't work. So that's kind of the overall summary of it. Uh, language doesn't work. And I don't know why they call it language and not reading because it really should be reading. But um, dyslexia is basically they're not hearing sounds correctly. And they need to be taught how to hear them correctly or how to blend them correctly. For example, um, I actually have a relative who has severe dyslexia. And I asked him one day when I was training, and I was just curious, I said, how many sounds do you hear in the word cat? And he said, one. And I said, no, no, how many sounds? Not how many, you know, not what word, how many words? I said, how many sounds? One. And so then I was like, oh, wow. So then I broke it down on my fingers. Cat, cat. How many sounds do you hear? One. So because of his dyslexia, he, he literally could not hear the different sounds inside of the word cat. So if you're trying to spell or trying to read and you can't tell the difference between the sounds, then you're going to really not be able to read it. So that for the, the blind person, of course, everything is by sound. So if we're having trouble mm -hmm. hearing, then we're totally lost because we don't hear have any yeah, well, sight. The, correct. And but it's not hearing as in like voices and things they can hear. It's, it's the distinguishing between uh, letter sounds. And so, yeah, the, the, if you think about it, a child who's born blind is exposed to a whole lot less um, brailled words than a sighted child with print. Because a sighted child with print can look around all over their kindergarten classroom and everything's labeled in print. But a child who's visually impaired or blind, they don't see any of that. They only see what the vision teacher or the aide brings to the child. But you can imagine the lack of exposure. Sure. And then you say, oh, this child has dyslexia, and they've already had less exposure to a reading medium. You know, they're kind of, it's, that's, you can see why they struggle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's interesting because my sister uh, was not blind at the time, but she was dyslexic inside it. And, but the focus was more on being able to read rather than understanding the sound of words. So it sounds like there's a new, new look at this word dyslexia. It's, well, it's been around since for at least, I think, 50 years that I know of, I know it's longer, it's late 1800s when they discovered something along the lines of dyslexia and they couldn't figure out what was going on. It was a couple of scientists. Um, Orton was one, Gillingham was the other one. And they basically discovered it was a stroke victim, but the symptoms were very similar to dyslexia. And so then they thought, well, what happens if we use those techniques on kids with dyslexia and then or they developed the term and then they started using the program that they developed and it was successful 
So most of the successful programs nowadays use what we call Orton-Gillingham-based programs. And it's basically where you teach the kid how to tear apart a word into sounds and put the sounds back together again to form a word. Mm. And it's very, it's very sequential. Um, there's the Wilson program, Barton program. I think Orton-Gillingham program might even still be around. Mm-hmm. And a couple mm-hmm. of others. I don't want to necessarily promote any one right. um, program in and of itself. But again, it's a tremendously important for a uh, non-sighted person to be able to uh, understand the sounds and be able to relate them to what they're doing. Yeah, that's. I, I prefer kids to be without an aid in the classroom if I can help it, but there's certain times and for certain ages where I think it's important. And I think one of the ones is, is when a child is doing reading class inside their classroom, an aide can be with them and showing them the same thing that their peers are getting so that they learn the sounds that go with the letters and they're not just guessing at it. Mm-hmm. Well, what else do you, do you feel you have to deal with with a blind child in terms of helping them for success? I kind of always come back around to the expanded core curriculum, which I know is teacher, VI teacher talk, but it's, um, there's just so much for a child who was born blind or visually impaired that these kids have to learn hands-on. Uh, when I taught in a classroom, I took my students out twice a week into the community so that they could learn to just order their own food at a, at a restaurant or we would get a grocery list together and I'd assign each kid, you go get the noodles, you go get the cheese, and um, and then you, I'll meet you in the front of the store for the older kids. Um, mm. And just skills along those lines, I feel are really crucial to learn, but it goes beyond the scope of what I do now. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, when I was a classroom teacher, that was something that I did a lot of and I would recommend parents um, really be hands-on with their kids with that kind of stuff. Uh, Have the kids pay for the food, have the kids help bag the food, you know, just anything that they can do that's hands-on. That's, that's what these kiddos need. And I find kids who have not had a lot of hands-on stuff can be challenging one sense to teach because they don't have a lot of comprehension of things. Right. Parents are so protective mm. and don't want the child to fail, quote unquote. So mm-hmm. they're not going to give them that kind of experience when indeed they need to have that and maybe make mistakes in order to learn from them. You can so hit the nail on the head. That's so true. I know I was a protective child and, uh, you know, there's a loss there. What for the kid to go, I know this is, this is, there's not enough time to change society, though we keep trying, you know, an individual case. Yeah. But I think about, you know, you were talking about kids going into, uh, someone who's blind, going into some of these other professions, but it feels like a lot of the professions just, uh, for example, uh, providing Braille, it's just like, uh, they just won't do it, even though we have the ADA. And that's got to be a barrier when they uh, 
go out in the world and they want to be a plumber, they want to be, uh, you know, something in the vocational area, uh, how do we get people in general to change to provide Braille, to uh, provide those things that uh, the kids need as they grow up? That is a hard question to answer, um, especially because it's for the older group. But I would say technology is mm-hmm. is a big part of the answer to that because they come out with so much stuff now. Like they have these pens that can read out loud as you kind of trace along the general area of the print. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I know they have one camera that hooks to the the glasses now that they can just point with their finger and it'll read a sign to them. Um, you know, just these, these things like that. I say technology is going to be the closest we can get to, to break down that barrier. Um, you have the Braille. Let's see, I, are we still on Braille notes? It's been a while since I've worked in a school, the, the Braille refreshable Braille displays. Mm-hmm. Um, and, kids can use those for things like programming you know the computer comes with the ability now i think all of them do to be able to drive a braille display so i think that that's a huge help um and you can scan stuff into ocr uh format which is um character is ox- <laughs> what those stands for character recognition um and then that can be put onto the computer so I, I think I think technology is opening a lot of doors. And it's, you know, one of the things I do give credit to the School for the Blind in California for and um, to Texas. They're the two schools I know. This is not meant to be um, saying other schools aren't doing it. But they're working really, really hard to make sure the kids graduate with the biggest amount of knowledge in their head of technology as they can possibly provide. And it's really the wave of the future in, in your mind. Mm-hmm. I still think Braille is definitely a needed uh, commodity and needed to mm-hmm. be taught. But I do know and acknowledge that technology is uh, good, indispensable, really. I think it's going to be mm-hmm. indispensable. I think it already is indispensable. Well, I believe uh, the statistics are right now that about... Uh, maybe a third of uh, people who are blind are employed. But of that group, mm-hmm. something like 85% of them know Braille, of the group that's employed. Yeah. So that, that says a whole lot about that. That lines up with the last study I read. Yeah. And, and no technology, too. Yeah. I used to. I always wanted to stay on top. The one sad thing about leaving a school district or a school for the blind is that I don't really have any way to kind of like stay on top of the tech anymore because when I was at the schools, the schools had bought the tech. I learned it and then taught it to the kids. Um, so I imagine there there are things that have come out in the last couple of years that are just making a huge difference in all kids' lives. I saw this one child who was, she had autism she was delayed and she was visually impaired. I think she had no vision at all. And she could use an iPad. Really? Yeah. And she was only like nine years old. It was awesome. 
That is awesome. That is awesome. What what you're certainly expressing, and I I have to commend you for it's a hope. Yes. You know, I think I've had friends who have been special ed teachers, and then after a while, they they get so beaten down by the system, they kind of lose that、mm-hmm. hope, and that's when they have to get out. I had lost it. I had lost it. I really had.、Um... Yeah, beaten down by the system is a really good way of putting that.、Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just it's a priority thing for the district, and I understand it to a degree. But at the same time, you you can't shred teachers that work in special ed. I wonder what we have to do to change the system: give more money, or uh, uh, change the whole attitude of school system towards those special needs kids. I think it's changing attitude. Study I read last says that、um, we spend, I see, five or seven dollars for a special needs kid compared to every one dollar for a non-special needs kid, and yet we still have a system that we feel like we're struggling to get funding for. So, where's the disconnect? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a lot of money. That's a huge difference, and it's part of the reason why. Without getting too much into politics, is the up above. I'll just say,、uh, fight special ed is because they、um, they see the money difference. So you're saying that special ed gets more money per student, but it just、uh, they're not getting the returns that they should be for that for that kind of different difference in pay. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I think that、mm. I don't understand. Such a huge. I mean, when when working with kids who are visually impaired, I can kind of understand because you know Braille Note will cost you three to five thousand dollars, and for only one student, that's a lot of money,、mm-hmm. and that's just one device. Because then the math textbook that I was picking up for a kid one year was fourteen thousand dollars, and that was just one book. I still had another five, so.、Um, He got away with being able to download books off of the internet, basically, for his, onto his Braille note for the the books that were all literacy based. And so the cost differential has a, a lot to do with、uh, even kids getting access to the things they need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I told my、um, supervisor how much that book was going to cost, I thought she was going to pass out. <laughs> I and I was like, we, I said, that's only, I said, that's only one kid. I said, that's、yeah. only one kid, one book. I said, we have twenty-five kids in this district. Where do you want me to start? <laughs> yeah, you know, there's. It probably would take a whole program for for us to talk about how the system can be changed. But I think the parents ought to be looking into it. It's got to be some、I、way、agree. to to change it, and maybe that's where the parent can. And put in put in their uh, uh, their concern and their interest. Yeah, I've had parents who have put in their two cents here and there, and and have gotten things done that I'd been working at for for forever. <laughs> Couldn't get anywhere. Ah, so when it comes from the parent, it makes it even more impact than the special ed teacher. Well, yeah, because the school doesn't—it's kind of going a little into politics, I guess—but the school doesn't want to be caught up in a, 
it's not a lawsuit, but it kind of is. It's a process in special ed called due process. Right. And it's expensive for everybody. But it's basically when the parents are unhappy, they can get, there's a bunch of steps they can go to before going to due process. And you can only hope that they go that length, mm-hmm. which is usually why districts will respond when a, when a parent gets really heated. Um because they don't want to be, nobody wants to be tied up in due process because it's just everybody gets pulled into it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I had, I had a case kid, three kids um, and the parents worked for a very well-known corporation and they got a lot of positive response from the district. Um, but then they decided to demand too much and and i had to agree with the district on that one the parents were deciding on too much mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but i was amazed at how far they got until they they kind of they Way just too wanted far. too much and they really can't go to the details without uh breaking mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. stuff that, you know you've been very very much an activist and very much uh, a positive influence, I'm sure, to your kids. Uh, and that must make you feel Thank good. You. It does, especially I've been teaching long enough that I have, uh, that I know of one girl, she's married, she's on my Facebook page now. She's married and she's starting into her master's degree. At, yeah, uh, that's wonderful. So, that's wonderful. Yeah, I feel pretty, you know, just happy and just content watching as my kids now are reaching ages of you know where they're they're grown up you know they find me on facebook and they're like hey miss co you know and keeps going on about what they've been up to and it just how can you not be proud of that if if someone wants to follow in your footsteps uh, do you have other people working with you, or are you a solo practitioner? But if somebody wanted to be to learn to have that optimism that you have, you want want them to call you. Yeah, that would you, be fine. Yeah, because you have some a gift that you can give to other people who are special ed to to kind of counteract counteract what they experience in the day-to-day so i commend you so people want to contact you would you repeat that uh uh, email for them to uh, get in touch with you yeah uh it's jco so j-c-o-e at touching hyphen success dot com Okay, well, thank you for being guest on this show, and, uh, you know, keep in touch with us. Okay, thank you for being out there advocating for all of our wonderful people that just, I don't know. There, there is something to working with people who have a visual impairment and or are blind that I find so much happiness with. We can all do everything that we need to do to get along in life, no matter our disability. And that we need to not assume people can't do things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. This has been uh, 
Bill Lundgren, host of uh, Blindside, uh, produced by the Audio Information Network of Colorado, and look forward to our other podcasts. Thank you and goodbye.